Good evening, everybody. It is a joy to be with you again this evening. Tonight, we have the privilege of breaking the pattern that we have established so far in our Route 66 series. Tonight, we have the privilege of studying the collective book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And you know, I was so excited when I was prescribed the book of Nehemiah because 13 chapters. And I was like, we can go deep into this text. We can develop this a little bit more fully. And in God's providence, there was an ice storm. And so tonight we have the privilege of studying Ezra and Nehemiah, which in the Hebrew Bible is collectively one book. And so it works out perfectly. I would encourage you to turn with me and your copy of God's word to the first chapter of the book of Ezra. But before we progress any further in our study this evening, let us seek the Lord and ask him for his, his grace and his illumination during our time of study. Let's pray together. Our Father, we confess that you are the great and the mighty and the awesome God. You are the God who is transcendent in every way, the God who dwells in inapproachable light. You are the Holy One of Israel. And God, we rejoice in the fact that you are God and you are alone, God. But Lord, we also thank you that we as your creatures have the ability to have a relationship with you. Lord, we, we praise you and we thank you that you have not left us groping in the darkness to find our own way, but that you have provided your word as a lamp to our feet and as a light to our path, as a revelation of your character to us. And Lord, tonight as we come to the study of your word, I pray for your grace that you would make us understand your precepts that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things written within your law, Lord, that you would provide the illumination of the spirit that we might rightly understand it and by understanding your word, rightly apply it to our lives so that we would be transformed more into the image of Jesus Christ who is himself the image of the invisible God. Lord, bless our time of study now for your, exalt, your exaltation and your glory and our good. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the Southern Baptist Convention was founded in the year of our Lord, 1845, and today consists of the largest denomination in the United States, comprised of over 47,000 churches in fellowship with one another. And you know, the SBC has a long and storied history of, of many things, but one of the most prominent things that they're known for is what occurred in the latter half of the last century known as the conservative resurgence. It was in the aftermath of the fundamentalist and modernist controversy at the beginning portion of the 20th century that many Southern Baptist professors and institutions began promoting and teaching anti-biblical, even heretical doctrines, denying the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible and denying even the, the deity and the literal resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the tide began to shift in the convention in the year 1979 with the election of Adrian Rogers to the presidency. Following Adrian Rogers' ele election, he began to appoint and to nominate several other conservative leaders within the, the convention. This return from theological liberalism and the conservative resurgence continued on to the eighth decade of the 20th century, leading ultimately to the appointment of Albert Moeller to the flagship institution and seminary, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in the year 1993. So what? What's the point of all this? Well, as I was seeking to wrap my head around the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, seeking to tr track the trajectory of the book, it occurred to me that in a lot of ways, there are eerie parallels and similarities between the trajectory of the Southern Baptist Convention in the last 50 to 75 years, along with the narratival trajectory that we see in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. You see, as the SBC returned to biblical orthodoxy from liberalism, so too in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, the exiled people of God returned to the promised land. In the same way that in the conservative resurgence that the SBC began to reform and restore their institutions and their seminaries, 
So too in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, the people return and they begin to restore their old manner of life, restoring the temple, restoring the walls of Jerusalem. And not only that, but experiencing reformation along the way. And sadly, in the same way that in our day, the SBC is experiencing recapitulation to its former days by adopting certain ungodly ideologies, by electing a serial plagiarizer to the presidency of the convention, and to wavering on their definition of the function of pastor in the same way. The exiled people of God recapitulate. They return to their old manners of life, and I trust that you'll see that during our study of the text. So what is the theme of Ezra and Nehemiah? What is the purpose that the author had in mind in writing? The author is most likely Ezra, who we also learned last week was probably the chronicler. And I would submit to you that MacArthur is exactly right. You see, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is placed within the canon of scripture to detail how the sovereign hand of God moved kings and overcame varied opposition to reestablish Israel as Abraham's seed nationally and individually in the promised land that was promised to Abraham and the patriarchs. So how is it that this collective book, Ezra and Nehemiah, details the sovereign hand of God in reestablishing the exiled people in the promised land? Well, this evening I want us to study two cycles that describe the return and the restoration of the exiled people of God, both physically and spiritually through the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah. So two cycles that describe the return and restoration of the exiled people of God. So with time being of the essence, let us make haste to our study of the biblical text. First, I want you to notice a first phase in the first cycle, and that is the return of the exiles. The return of the exiles, we see this in the first two chapters of Ezra. And Ezra picks right back up where he left off at the end of 2 Chronicles. Even, even Wes took us there last week. But I want you to notice that in this explanation of the decree that was issued by Cyrus, king of Persia, I want you to see and notice that it was not just the initiative of the Persian king. Notice what the text says. It says this decree was issued by Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 12, it says, then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares Yahweh, for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. Now, in terms of biblical revelation, the prophet Jeremiah is not the only place that we see Cyrus being raised up as God's instrument in the reestablishment of the exiled people in the promised land. The prophet Isaiah, some 100 years prior to Jeremiah, says in Isaiah 44, 28, these are the words of the Lord. It says, it is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will perform all my desire." And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Now, not only was the return of the exiled people ordained by God, but it was also orchestrated by God. Look back at verse one. Continue reading. It says that Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. This must cause our minds to catalog back to the Proverbs where we read in Proverbs 21, verse one, that the king's heart is like channels of water in the Lord's hands, that he turns it whichever way that he wishes. I love what Paul House says here at this point. He says that God's word continues to rule history just as it has done since the Lord spoke the universe into existence. The first chapter of the book of Ezra reads almost as a second Exodus account. You can see God raising up a prominent world leader to be the instrument in terms of bringing the people out of captivity back to the land that was promised to Abraham. You can also see them leaving in chapter one with articles of silver and with gold. 
a recollection of the Exodus account. So in chapter one, we see the record of the return of the exiles to the land. And if we continue along in our study in chapter two, we see the list or the record of the exiles, of those who did return. But that brings us to a second phase of our study that I want to introduce you to. The second phase of the first cycle is the restoration of the temple. The restoration of the temple, we can see this in chapters three through six. The exiled people are back in the land and it is time for the temple operations to resume. They have remained dormant for approximately 50 years at this point from the destruction and the overhaul of Jerusalem in the year 586 BC. And in verses one through three of chapter three, we see that the people of God first and foremost rebuild the altar and begin to offer burnt offerings on it. And you see, this is essential because in terms of the Old Testament economy, sacrifices were the prescribed means of God for the atonement of sins. This is the first thing that they do is they rebuild this altar. Now, there's a couple of phrases that I wanna bring to your attention in these first verses of chapter three. Notice in verse two, the final phrase. It compares it to, as it is written in the law of Moses. And then again, in verse three, we see, as it is written. And then later down, we see it's according to the ordinance that these sacrifices were offered. You see, this isn't just a return to various Old Testament customs and ritualistic practices. This is, was a return of the people to the prescribed worship of Yahweh as he had given in Torah. God has instructed his people how he was to be worshiped, how he, the holy God, was to be approached, and how he as a holy God could dwell in the midst of the people. Let your eyes glance down to verse six of chapter three. We see in verse six, these words, it says, the foundation of the temple of Yahweh had not been laid. You see, the temple was the central focus, the, the preeminent object in terms of Israelite worship, and it here still laid in its dilapidated state from the destruction of Jerusalem. It was at the temple that God's special presence dwelt within the Holy of Holies above the Ark of the Covenant. It was at the temple that sacrifices were offered for the atonement of sins. And it was at the temple that the corporate worship of God took place. And here we see the temple is still in ruins. Now, as we fast forward into our work, we see that this rebuilding, this restoring of the temple project was not one that went, was easy. It was not one that was a smooth sailing process. But as we come to chapter four, we see that it actually faced various opposition and enemies from without. In verses one and two of chapter four, we see that the enemies of Judah and Benjamin come and they say, let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God. When this offer for the mutual association is rejected, the enemies resulted to even more aggressive and antagonistic means. You can look later in chapter four to verse four, it says that they discouraged the people of Judah. They frightened them from building and they hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel. Now you see the opposition of enemies to the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem is a major theme that we see play out through this collective work. It is woven throughout the fabric and the tapestry of the book Ezra Nehemiah. And it's at this point that I wanna draw out for us a theological application. You see, we must not be so naive to think that it is only in the book Ezra Nehemiah 
that God's people face opposition from the enemies of God. This has been occurring since the opening pages of the Bible. You remember in the curses that were subsequent to the fall that God said that he would put enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. We observe this in chapter four of Genesis with Cain and Abel. We observe this with the people of Egypt and the sons of Israel. This is nothing new. But let's not only make theological application from this text, but let's, let's get personal. Let's make personal application. You see, if you are an offspring of the woman, through the preeminent offspring, the head crusher, the Lord Jesus Christ, you will face opposition in this life. Yes, you will experience the ills that living in a Genesis 3 sin-cursed world affords, but even more so than that, you will face the opposition of those who hate God and despise his gospel, who despise his Christ and his people. That's what our Lord said, is it not? John 15, 20 says, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted you, or if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Matthew 10, 22 says, you will be hated by all because of my name. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, because the banner of Jesus Christ flies above your life, you will face opposition in this life by professors, by classmates, by friends, by coworkers. It is guaranteed if you are following in the pattern of Jesus Christ, you will be persecuted and hated solely for the fact that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. But Christians, Take heart. They hate you because of God's Christ and your Lord. It was in the same way before you that they persecuted your master. And this is the lot. This is the calling that we have been called to as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to 1 Peter 2, 21. So Ezra, the, the chronicler, the, the compiler of Ezra and Nehemiah, inserts this historical letter from King Artaxerxes some 50 years after the fact of the rebuilding of the temple to highlight this very fact, that the people of God face opposition because there is this, this eternal conflict that's happening after the fall between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. We see at the end of chapter four that it is by this opposition that the work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased. The people actually halted the work in the rebuilding process of the temple lasting some 16 years. And then we come to chapter five. And again, we see the same theme played out in chapter five. We see the opposition of the surrounding peoples to the building of the temple they send a letter to King Darius. And it's in this letter that Tatanai records the historical background of the building of the temple. This historical survey and background goes all the way back to the, the foundation and the establishment of the Salemnic temple, all the way through the Babylonian deportation and exile, all the way up to the present state. In chapter six of Ezra, we see that King Darius makes this urgent search and discovers a memorandum of the decree that was issued by Cyrus some 20 years earlier. The very decree that we read in the first opening verses of Ezra. But in chapter six, it's interesting because as this memorandum is found and as King Darius responds to those who oppose the people of God, he says, not only are you not to hinder in the work of the temple, he actually says, you are to aid in the rebuilding project. Do you remember our theme that we started out our study with this evening? It is the sovereign hand of God 
moving through kings and against varied opposition to reestablish his people in the promised land. Again, I love what Paul House says and writes. Catch this. He says, it is God who affects Israel's return. It is God who makes the temple's rebuilding possible. It is God who turns the people back to the Sinai covenant. It is God who creates the opportunity for Jerusalem to rise from the ashes of destruction. The sovereign hand of God is at work. Look at verse 14 of chapter six. Verse 14 of chapter six, we read that the elders of the Jews were successful in building Later in verse 14, it says, they finished building according to the command of the God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes. The temple was rebuilt and was completed in the year 516 BC. It's in these chapters, chapters three through six, that we see the process of the restoration of the temple. Now, as we come to chapter seven, this brings us to a third phase of the first cycle which is the reformation of the people. We saw the return of the exiles, the restoration of the temple, and now we come to the reformation of the people. And as chapter seven unfolds, we're introduced to a new character, to Ezra. Ezra was the priest scribe who was skilled in the law of Moses. And during the reign of Artaxerxes, Ezra returns to the promised land from Babylon. And I want you to notice a phrase in verse six. This is very important in terms of understanding Ezra and Nehemiah. In verse six, it says that the king granted him all he requested. Why? Because the hand of Yahweh, his God, was upon him. Let your eyes glance down to verse nine because the good hand of his God was upon him. This phrase is reiterated and repeated throughout the rest of Ezra and even in the early chapters of Nehemiah. It was not the brilliant leadership and wise administration of Ezra or Nehemiah that leads to the restoring of the temple, to the restoring of the structures of Jerusalem, or even the reformation of the people. All of the happenings in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah must be traced back to the God who is at work behind the scenes accomplishing his plan and his purpose. It is he who works out his will amongst the inhabitants of the earth. I want you to notice something else about Ezra. Let your eyes glance down to verse 10. Verse 10, we read this that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of Yahweh and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. The verb set his heart in Hebrew means to be resolved, to be dogmatically committed to perform a certain task. It speaks of intentional deliberation made by the individual. And notice the complementary verb to study. He set his heart to study. This describes the intentional, persistent, laborious task of making an inquiry into a matter. It's the same verb that's used in Psalm 111 verse 2 that says, great are the works of Yahweh. They are studied by all who delight in them. Let me ask you a question. Does this describe your heart? Does this describe your motivation as a disciple of Christ and a child of God? Are you resolved to make diligent and persistent inquiry into the mind of Christ that we have in the pages of divine revelation? What does your time look like when you study God's word? Is it rushed? Are you double-minded during your time spent in devotion to the word, thinking about all the tasks that you have ahead of you for the day, thinking about how you're going to accomplish them? 
Do you meditate and do you contemplate upon what you learn in the scriptures or does it pass between the eight inches from ear to ear faster than a North Texas thunderstorm? Does this describe your heart? This is the heart of the child of God. I mean, a brief survey and cursory reading of the 119th Psalm flushes this out before you even hit the second stanza. Now notice that Ezra did not just set his heart to study the law. James in James 1, says that we are to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And here in the Old Testament example of Ezra, we have the perfect model. The text continues to read that Ezra set his heart to practice it. And let me just ask you point blank, does this describe you? Is that the earnest prayer of your heart? Do you gather together here at Roots on Sundays and Wednesdays? Do you gather corporately and collectively with the other faithful members of Countryside just to walk out the door with no intention, with no desire, with no ambition to actually practice the word of God? to actually put rubber to the road. You see, this fact that Ezra set his heart to, to, to practice the law, he was not merely content just to allow himself to be a storehouse for God's ordinances and precepts, but he was resolved and determined to conform and bend his will and his life in accordance to the revealed will and word of God. We must ask ourselves how we're doing there, as I have this week. May we all, with unbridled affection and devotion, seek to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and conform more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was then and only then that Ezra took his stand to teach God's people to be an honorable vessel useful to the master. Carrying on in chapter seven, again, we see the theme of God's sovereign hand at work. We see the decree of King Artaxerxes to allow Ezra and the second return to the land in 458 but again, I want you to notice the response of God's servant at the end of this chapter in verse 27. Ezra says, blessed be Yahweh, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart. Ezra does not look merely to King Artaxerxes, to the, the Persian king as the impetus, as the, as the sole source of this return, but he looks to the king of heaven who put such a thing in his heart. At the beginning of chapter eight, we are given a list of names of those who returned with Ezra. And they returned to the land in safety. And again, I want you to see this at the end of chapter eight. The end of chapter eight, verse 31 and 32, it says that the hand of our God was over us and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and the ambushes by the way, thus we came to Jerusalem. In chapter nine, we're presented with a very serious dilemma. Look at the opening verses of chapter nine. It says that the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. Verse two, for they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the lands. And indeed, the leaders were the foremost in this unfaithfulness. You see, this practice was a clear violation of the law. I mean, we read this last time in 1 Kings with the downfall of Solomon, but Deuteronomy 7 makes this abundantly clear where we read, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Why? For they will turn your 
heart, your sons away from following me to serve other gods, for you are a holy people, a people chosen by God as a special possession. You see, the sons of Israel were not to intermarry with the nations because that would introduce false worship. Their hearts would be steered and directed away from the proper reverence and worship of Yahweh. The nation of Israel was to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This was their unique and special calling. They were to be distinct and separated from the surrounding pagan nations so that they may be a light of the knowledge of God. Look at verse six of Ezra chapter nine. I want you to look and notice Ezra's confession. Ezra says, our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Let me ask you personally, is this how you view your sin? Do you have such an exalted view of who God is that you proclaim along with the prophet Isaiah, woe is me for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. Do you have such a view of the pervasiveness of your own sin and iniquities that this prayer of confession clearly displays? Let me just say, as we consider the, this phrase or this phase of the reformation of the people, I want you to catch this, that all true reformation begins with a humble confession and a contrite repentance for the ways in which Yahweh's laws have been breached, his character defamed, and his glory depreciated. Let me rewind that statement. All true reformation begins with a humble confession and a contrite repentance for the ways in which Yahweh's laws have been breached, his character defamed, and his glory depreciated. You see, reformation begins with genuine repentance and it also leads to definitive action. Look at the opening verses of chapter 10, specifically verses two and three. It says that we have been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So now let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. The people respond by separating themselves and putting away their foreign wives as an appropriate manifestation of genuine heartfelt repentance and reformation. And this is where our first cycle in the, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah comes to an end. Now, I trust that you have seen just even in our brief survey of the book of Ezra, the sovereign hand of God, moving kings and overcoming varied opposition to reestablish his people in the promised land. Well, that leads us to a second cycle the second cycle in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, it closely parallels the first. In the first phase of this second cycle that I wanna look at is the return of Nehemiah in the beginning pages of what's in our English Bibles, the book of Nehemiah. And it's in these opening pages that a great dilemma is presented. Look at verse three. Verse three. The remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. When Nehemiah received this devastating report, he immediately takes upon himself the posture and the position of humble contrition, praying to the great and awesome God of heaven to preserve the covenant that he had irrevocably established with his people. We learn at the end of chapter one, after this prayer of confession, the unique and the strategic position of Nehemiah within the ranks of the Persian empire. We see that he was 
the cupbearer to the king. And it's this unique and this strategic position that allows Nehemiah to have the ear of the highest authority in the empire of Persia. Look at verse four. Verse four of chapter two. The king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. This demonstrates that Nehemiah was aware that there was no eloquent speech. There was no lofty petition that he could offer that would warrant the king responding in a favorable way and disposition to his cause. He prayed to the God of heaven. And after this request, King Artaxerxes answers it. But I want you to notice again the emphasis that the author has on the why behind him answering it. Look at verse eight. Verse eight says, the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. Again, that theme of the sovereign hand of God moving kings to reestablish his people in the land is observed. In this third return under the helm of Nehemiah in the year 445 BC, Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem to find Jerusalem lying still in ruins in a dilapidated state. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 says, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. And so in this third return of Nehemiah, Nehemiah returns to the land. And that brings us to a second phase in this second cycle, which is the restoration of Jerusalem. The restoration of Jerusalem. We see this in chapters three through seven. Chapter three describes the rebuilding of the gates and the walls of Jerusalem along with those who aided in this work. And as we move into chapter four, we observe that the opposition of God's enemy was not relegated to the temple rebuilding project only. But we see fleshed out in chapter four that there was opposition to the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah encourages the people against this opposition. Look at verse 14 of chapter four. These are the comforting words of Nehemiah. He says, do not be afraid of them. <laughs> Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers and your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. And not only did Nehemiah encourage the people in this work, but he also facilitated in an administrative way the rebuilding project. We see detailed in chapter four that the people were equipped with the trowel to build up the wall and with the sword to defend against hostile forces. And as we continue to move along into chapter 15, I want you to notice something about the character of Nehemiah, specifically in verse 15. Nehemiah says that he didn't take upon himself the various privileges that might be afforded to a governor of the land. And he says this in verse 15 that he did not. He says, I did not do so because of the fear of God. This must be a primary motivation, a compelling driving force in every single one of our lives. I love how the Reformation Study Bible describes this attitude. It describes the fear of God as this. Listen, to fear God is to know God, to trust God, to obey God, and to show him reverence. To fear God is to know God, to trust God, to obey God and to show him reverence. I love what Thomas Watson says in The Great Gain of Godliness about the fear of God. He says that the fear of God is a leading grace. 
It is the first seed God sows in the heart. God is so great that the Christian is afraid of displeasing him and so good he's afraid of losing him. It takes 52 days to rebuild the wall surrounding Jerusalem. Truly a miraculous work. So much so that even the surrounding enemies say they must have been helped with the help of their God. You see, while Ezra and Nehemiah provided excellent leadership to the post-exilic people of God, the restoration of the temple, the restoration of Jerusalem and its physical structures, and the reformation of the people must be traced to the sovereign God of all history. That brings us to chapter eight. And I want us to look at a third phase of the second cycle, again, closely paralleling Ezra, and that is the reformation of the people. The reformation of the people, specifically observed in chapters eight through 12. In chapter eight of Nehemiah, Ezra, the priest scribe, takes his stand in the reading of the book of the law, providing understanding to the people but I want you to notice something about this chapter. You see, I want you to notice the primacy of the word of God when it comes to the reformation of God's people. Look at verse three with me. It says that Ezra, he read from it before the square, which is in front of the water gate from early morning until midday. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Look, later in chapter, verse 13 of chapter eight. It says that they gathered to Ezra the scribe for what purpose? That they might gain insight into the words of the law. You see, we studied earlier that genuine repentance is the starting point for reformation. But here we see there's another factor involved. If we were to consider this in a sequential manner, in a linear manner, we could say this, that revelation leads to repentance, which in turn leads to reformation. Revelation leads to repentance, which in turn leads to reformation. And this has always been God's bodice operandi in reformation. Think about King Josiah in 2 Kings 22 and 23. Upon the rediscovery of the book of the law and upon the reading in the midst of the people, Josiah implements these massive reforms and revival back to Torah amongst the people. Consider the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. The word of God had lay obscured within the confines of the Roman Catholic system for so long And it was Tyndale who said, I will cause the plowboy to know more scripture than the Pope. It is Luther who at the end of his life said it was the word which did it all. The primacy of the word and the reformation of God's people. Look at verse three of chapter nine. This this continues. It says that the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and iniquities. Verse three, while they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of Yahweh, their God for a fourth of the day. You should be thankful that I only have 45 minutes. But I think about a fourth of a day, that's six hours. That's, a, that's quite a series that's, that we could go. But I want us to to make a pit stop here in chapter nine. We're gonna briefly cover this, but I wanna highlight several essential truths about who God is in chapter nine of Ezra, or chapter nine of Nehemiah, rather. You see, I truly believe in my heart of hearts that there is no greater need for you and me than to know God more. To drink from the fount of divine revelation to behold the glory of our great God who is seated on the throne. There's no greater endeavor that we could undertake. This must be the greatest longing of our soul, the greatest affection of our heart. And so let us look at several essential truths of the character of God in Nehemiah chapter nine. First, I want you to notice that he is the praiseworthy God. He is the praiseworthy God. Look at verses five and six. 
Oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are Yahweh. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you give life to all of them and the heavenly host bows before you. Secondly, I want you to notice that he is the providing God. He is the providing God. Let your eyes glance down to verse 13. It says in verse 13 that you gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. Verse 15 says, you provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger. You brought forth water from the rock. And you told them to enter in order to possess the land which you had given them. God is the providing God who had provided for them spiritually through the revelation of the law. He had provided for them physically through physical necessities such as food and water. And he had provided for them nationally in terms of bringing them and giving them the land. He is Yahweh Yira, Yira, Jehovah Yira from Genesis chapter 22, verse 14. He is the Lord who will provide. (laughs) Thirdly, I want you to notice that God is the pardoning God. He's the pardoning God. Look at verse 17. It says, you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Fourth, I want you to notice that he's the present God. He's the present God. Look at verse 19. It says, you in your great compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. Again, this is just a survey. I wish I could develop this more. But next, I want you to notice also that he is the powerful God. He is the powerful God. Look at verse 23 and 24. It says that you brought them into the land. You subdued before them the inhabitants of the land. You gave them into their hand. Yahweh is the divine conquering warrior who led his people into the land and the conquest. He is the powerful God. Not only is he the powerful God, but sixthly, he is the patient God. He is the patient God. Look at verses 30 and 31. It says, however, you bore with them for many years. Verse 31, nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. Lastly, he is the promise-keeping God. He is the promise-keeping God. Verse 32 says, Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant. Later or earlier in verse eight, it says that you fulfill your promise for you are righteous. Is not our God the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. May our hearts echo and refrain to the John Newton hymn, let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise our great Savior's name. How can we after even just a brief glance at who our God is? But next, I want you to notice a fourth and a final phase of this second cycle, and that is the recapitulation of the people. The recapitulation of the people, the people return, in other words, back to their old ways. That's what recapitulation means. In chapter 13, we see that the the people neglect the needs of the temple, leaving it forsaken. We see that they profane the Sabbath by conducting business on the Sabbath, And we see later in verse 23 that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As a dog returns to its own vomit, 
And as a pig wallows in the muck and mire, so too the exiled people of God returned to the very sins which had displaced them in the first place. And these, along with the prophecy of Malachi, are the final dated words of the Old Testament in terms of chronology. Schreiner says it well. He says that Israel's primary problem was not the opposition of the enemies. Rather, it was their own lack of devotion and commitment to Yahweh. I mean, surely, as we come to the close, as the curtain of the Old Testament epic comes to a close and we see the people of God in this state, surely this is not what God had planned for his special and chosen people. The Davidic throne is unoccupied. The people are vassals of another sovereign. The land is not what was promised in Genesis 15, but it awaits It awaits the fullness of times when the Davidic Messiah would appear, when the Davidic Messiah would usher in the new covenant and bring salvation to his people. Let me ask you as we close, have you experienced this salvation? Are you a beneficiary of the new covenant promises the forgiveness of sins, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Have you turned from your sins, forsaken them and turned in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ in his perfect life, in his propitiatory death, in his promised resurrection? I love the hymn by Indelible Grace, Upon a Life. It says, upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death. I stake my whole eternity. Is that the refrain of your heart? Forgoing all of your own righteousness, looking solely to him and finding him to be the all-glorious, all-satisfying savior that he is. Friends, as we close, I would encourage you this very evening, turn to Christ. Turn from your sins, look to him. Let's pray. Great God of heaven, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Lord, just so, so precious. Lord, it is truly the delight of our souls. Lord, I pray that you would take these truths and plant them deep within our hearts. And Lord, allow us, even as Ezra, to not just study the law, to not just study your word, but to make it a habit, a diligent resolve commitment to practice it by your grace, by your spirit, for your own glory. Do this work in us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.